Chapter 15 of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. New Facts for Constance and Andrew. Pilgrimage to the place of the wise is to find escape from the flame of separation. Jalalu Didadin. As tiny pebbles flung at random may cut a more cruel wound than the heavy missile thrown by a skillful hand, so it is often the little word, the little action, which most deeply scars the heart. During the following days, Constance became aware that two such trifles had hit her mind with a sharp and stinging impact, leaving little bruises which she was not able to forget. One had been tossed in all kindliness, by Andrew in the moment in which she had told him of Vera's existence. That genial materialist had then affirmed, casually as one endorses the unquestionable truths of life, the sanctity, delightfulness, and immeasurable importance of all growing, budding creatures, the enviable lot of their protectors. I'm glad that you've got a little girl to look after. It's an interest." An interest she, poor Constance, had thought it an embarrassment, and thus missed an opportunity of selfless joy. Deceived by the shabbiness of the symbol, she had lost the secret gift. It was stupid, and she hated stupidity. Andrew, because he was her friend, had not even suspected this, that a child could be other than an occasion of happy service to those who watched it, that it could possibly be regarded as an obstruction, a complication of the individual life, had not occurred to him. The healthy dependence of bodily creatures on one another, the family link, was his way of seeing things. This pebble, then, had made a hole in her carefully constructed defenses, and through it she caught sight of the great and sunny landscape from which she had fenced herself. The second blow was sharper. Mrs. Weatherby, coming to the bookshop on Monday morning in pretended search of a magazine which she knew that Lambton did not stock, discovered Constance in the act of making up accounts and naturally concluded that she was at leisure. "'I've just come from poor Mrs. Reed's,' she said. "'I heard of the old man's death on Sunday night. Phoebe Foster called at her flat during the afternoon, and she opened the door an inch or so and told her, and then slammed it in her face. These clever people are so unpractical that I thought I'd better go round this morning and see if she had made any arrangements for the funeral. I put my foot in the doorway so that she couldn't shut it on me. It was a very good thing to be forced to see people when you were in trouble. Well, I got into the sitting-room, and the first thing I saw was the dead body of the cat. It seemed it had died the same evening, quite suddenly. Extraordinary thing that it and the old man should go off together like that. I wonder if she is quite sure of her milkman. I don't know which of them the poor thing is more upset about. She couldn't look at it, and she wouldn't talk. I told her that she could have a grave for it in my garden if she liked. These horrible modern flats have no provision for that sort of thing, and you can't expect a woman to put her last link with life into a sanitary dustbin. 
Constance felt sick when she heard this story. She had little doubt as to either the manner of Ra's death or his place of burial. Evidently, it had not entered Helen's mind that one could refuse even the least appropriate of sacrifices to the beloved dead. She had put her creed into practice, a circumstance which always fills the creedless with amazement and unwilling awe. Miss Tyrell faced the thing in dull bewilderment. She writhed also under the weight of a profound mortification, for this, which seemed to her so morbid, so insane, so unreal an act, was accepted by the watcher with a sympathy which he seldom extended to the normal proceedings of a civilized society. He saw here a plain and natural manifestation of that friendship for the dead upon which he had insisted so unpleasantly when she sat with him in the graveyard amongst the fells. And the absurdity of sacrificing a pet animal instead of an expensive wreath of flowers did not strike his limited imagination. She had held herself his teacher, but here, as in the adventure of the cup, she was baffled where he divined a guiding thread. She groped for it, and, stretching wild hands in the dark, came on strange forms, amazing living things, which defied her mania for classification. There was worse behind it. She might endure the superiority of the Watcher, for he was a supernatural being with whom she could hardly compete. But in this dim, strange tract of a country on which she had stumbled, in which the most ordinary objects and events seemed charged with menace for those who dared to walk alone, she had been forced to learn from persons whom she had scarcely thought it worthwhile to teach. Helen and Andrew, the one earthly, the other absurd, and taken her hands and brought them into sudden contact with certain unnoticed realities, aspects of that experience, that life, which she had so loudly demanded and so utterly missed. Even now her touch upon these things was vague and clumsy. She was encased in the plate armor of her own personality, fretted within by her rebellious will, but curbed and held safe by her well-educated egotism. These other people, these foolish givers and lovers, were unfettered. They rushed out to the encounter of dreary responsibilities, childish sacrifices, and hideous griefs. They had much to endure, and little to show, but they lived, were at one with life. It was the only grace she had asked of her goddess, and now she knew that it had been refused. When the day's work was over and Vera had been put to bed, the imperative inner voice, which paid little attention to her tastes, urged her to return to Helen, to serve her if she might. Constance went unwillingly, for an attempt to gain admittance on Sunday had failed, and this rebuff had wounded her young self-conscious sympathy, even induced a certain bitterness. She had felt that her difficult attempts at consolation had their importance. It was amazing that Mrs. Reed should not desire them. Now she forgot this righteous anger, and something that was almost diffidence took its place. She was going to school in a new spirit of humility. 
She even bought a large bunch of white chrysanthemums on her way to the flat that there might be some visible excuse for her visit. She was surprised when the door was opened quickly, more when Mrs. Reed said to her, I am glad to see that you have come again. She glanced hastily about her as she answered, not knowing what she might see, but the little sitting-room looked much as usual. There was no evidence of death. Mr. Reed's spectacle-case and Ra's brush and comb had not yet been put away. Helen said, When you knocked at the door, I was afraid that perhaps it might be Mrs. Vince. Has she not been? No, but she will come. She is sure to come, isn't she? said Helen, wistfully. And then it will be difficult. I must be so very careful what I say. Why? Well, she believes in me. She thinks I am spiritual, you know. I must never let her see it's all gone black. Then she would lose it, too, just as I have. She would never believe in mysteries again. I must prevent that from happening if I can. I have been thinking and thinking. I know that I have got to pretend. It will be something to do, and I must, because I am responsible, you see. Death, the magnum opus of the divine. Oh, one should never see it if one wants to think of it like that. It's all emptiness. The symbols just melted away, and there was nothing, nothing behind. The watcher murmured, I suppose this must always happen when death touches the teachers of your creeds, and yet they go on. Helen continued, almost as if she would reply to him, But I taught it, and now I have got to stand up to it. It sounded so splendid. I felt so sure that it was true. One seemed to see it, and now I see emptiness. But they mustn't. They are young and hopeful. It helps them, and perhaps for them it may go on being true. Perhaps. You never believed in it, said Helen. You always seem to have a secret of your own. That is why I wanted you now so much. You are solid, just yourself, just alive and warm. And I can say what I like, foolish, dreadful, hopeless things. But with the others, what am I to do? They fed on me. They had no experience. They were convinced by the rhythms of the words. To tell them the truth would be cruel, and I don't think being cruel can be right. It would not be right to teach them your new lie. Is it a lie? Why can she not see it? exclaimed the watcher. Are blindness and suffering also of the essence of the idea? Is it a lie? asked Helen again. Oh, I hope it is, only there's nothing else. She approached Constance, held her arm, looked into her eyes. You know something, don't you? You are different, she said. Oh, tell me if you know it. If only he is all right, if he lives and is not lonely. I don't think that I mind being hurt, having nothing to do. Constance answered, I know so very little. I, too, am blinded, but somehow I am sure that we are all together in one friendship, the living and the dead. You have only got to wait a little while. Presently the light will come back, and you will know it, too. No, 
It will never come back for me any more. But that does not really matter if my old dear is all right and if I am able to pretend. The bell rang sharply and Mrs. Reed went almost with alacrity towards the door. Her mood had changed and she looked expectant. I knew, she said, that Mrs. Vince would come. Constance heard a heavy footstep and the sound of an umbrella placed with decision in the stand. Then Mrs. Reed came back, and Andrew followed her into the room. "'I came,' he said, "'for Muriel. Bad headache. Awfully sorry. Not fit to go out. Wanted to know if there was anything we could do.' He sat down awkwardly and eyed Constance. "'Rather expected,' he remarked, "'to find you here.' Helen looked crestfallen. In the midst of her misery, one corner of her mind had remained aware of her importance, both as a teacher and as a widow. She had supposed that she would be an object of interest as well as of sympathy to her followers. Having yet to learn that popularity seldom survives in the presence of grief. Moreover, Muriel's avoidance of her in the hour of desolation wounded her heart as well as her pride. She was fond of her, and had thought of Mrs. Vince's delicate personality as one may think in moments of weariness, of soft cushions, and unattainable sense. The mere fact of her prettiness would have made her visit comforting, would have restored to Helen's darkened universe something of the light of life. But Muriel had a headache, and the other woman understood. She rejected Andrew's advances very gently, wanted nothing, would tell him nothing. The arrangements, she said, were made. No, not cremation. The other was not so bad. She looked appealingly at Constance, who interpreted the message as a request to remove Mr. Vince as quickly as she might. He rose, as she had expected, when she did, shook hands warmly with Helen, and muttered hastily, "'Awfully grieved, don't you know? Dear old Reed, man I always respected.' one of the best. He opened the door, and Constance would have preceded him, but Helen clutched her hand, held her for a moment, and Vince went out into the little hall. Come back, she said. You will come back, won't you? Promise that you will come back. You see, the others are no good. Constance replied humbly, I'm no good either, but I want to help you if I can. She was reminded, curiously, of Vince's first overtures of friendship. She seemed destined to take Muriel's leavings, to console them for their idol's indifference. It was hardly the part she would have chosen, but life thrust it into her hand, and she knew that she must not reject it. "'I rather fancy,' said the watcher, reflectively, as they went down that long flight of stairs, "'that you make it worse for yourselves by being so obstinate about it.' Do you not? I see the will plating you together, forcing you to interpenetrate each other's lives, to pass through, to let go, to move amongst experience, perpetually to lose life and to find. And you will not. You make yourselves rigid. You resist. You clutch at one another, crying, Mine! Mine! And then you must be torn apart. But don't you see, she answered, that they care for one another? If I only could learn to care like that. 
That is foolish. Do you wish to suffer? Stupid little creatures, swept so quickly through the dream, and feeling your chance encounters to be important and making such a fuss. Does no one amongst you love that which dies not, that which is before instead of that which is behind? Vince replied for her, saying, Shocking thing, that poor woman left all alone, nothing to look forward to. Only her death. He looked at her with concern. It has evidently upset you a bit, he said. Not like you, to have these morbid ideas. Shouldn't think about death. Might as well think about the dentist. Trying things, these visits. Muriel funked it, poor girl, when it came to the point, said it left such a mark on the subconscious mind, so she sent me along in her place. I fancy she was afraid Mrs. Reed might show her the old chap's body. These people have such queer ideas. One thing, her views and so on, will be a comfort to her now, not like a woman without any religion. She's very wretched. Bound to be, replied Andrew. Bound to be, poor thing. After all, he was her husband. Do you think that makes any difference? Why, of course, said Vince, astonished. A man, don't you know, who marries a woman, sticks to her and so on, she's bound to repay that with affection. Husbands and children, one takes care of you, and you take care of the other. And so decent women, even if they're clever, always love them at the bottom, and it is just at times like this that they find that out. Constance brooded a little and then said, It is because she took care of him that Mrs. Reed is so desolate now. Being his wife does not come in, really. Always counts. Must do. After all, she had the protection of his name. Do you think one would mourn for that? It counts. Counts more than you think, said Andrew again. Of course, poor creature, it's all the worse for her because she has no family. Pity she didn't adopt a child as you did. Most sensible thing I ever heard. Admire you for it. Muriel is most interested, anxious to talk to you about education, character building, and so on. I know nothing about that. Just as well, just as well. Bad for boys, all this modern drivel, and worse for girls, in all the probability. Give her plenty of dolls and teach her plain sewing, and she'll never miss the myths and nature study and all that other rot. I should like for her to turn out satisfactorily. Of course you would. Main object of your existence. Bound to be. Something to leave behind you. Just my feeling about the boy. Must keep an eye on him. See that he gets a proper chance in spite of the women. Easy enough for you. Got it all your own way. She is rather a difficult child. I like them to have spirit. Shows they're healthy. Namby-pamby children are no good. Well, she isn't that. I'm Awfully keen to see that youngster, said Andrew. I believe she's a ripping kid. When can I come? It was only nine o'clock. Vera looked her best when she was asleep. Constance, swiftly reviewing many dangers, chose the least. Come now, she said. We're nearly there, and you can have a peep at her in bed. So they climbed the shabby stairs, came to her sitting room, and Andrew helped her to light the duplex lamp. Its smell did not seem to annoy him, 
but he looked with pity and surprise at the poor and dingy room at the worn carpet at the paralyzed venetian blinds he wished all women to be comfortable and was shocked by this glaring testimony to the poverty of his friend it came suddenly to miss tyrell's mind that vince was the first guest to be admitted to her lodging since the april night on which she had brought the watcher home he sat by the fireplace in the chair whence that wild-eyed thing had first gazed with fear and amazement on the life in which it was entrapped he too came as an inquisitor demanding admittance but for him there were no paradoxes no difficulties above all no mysteries only the plain straightforward natural things how comfortable a destiny she thought to see life single-eyed and see it wrong she crept to the bedroom assured herself that vera slept and called vince softly to her side they stood together looking in silence at the head sunk deep in its soft pillow at the scattered locks of black hair so like miss tyrell's own and at the little cruel face that they framed which seemed to have come from some alien strata of life when andrew turned to his friend there were tears in his eyes he took her hand and squeezed it thank you he said for allowing me to come End of chapter 15